The Swithin, Book 2, Episode 13. Welcome to The Swithin. Hey there, folks. This is Scott Tellick, author of The Swithin, the series that retells the real legend of King Arthur and his buddies in a series of epic fantasy novels and this podcast. We're going to continue listening to book two, The Sons of Constance, but just remember, if you get tired of listening over the next several months, the entire book is available right now as an ebook and paperback at Amazon and various other online retailers, and the audiobook will be available very, very soon over at Audible. Actually, book three is going to be out very soon by December 1st, and if you don't mind reading it on a Kindle or other electronic device, you can get it for a dollar right now, pre-order it, where it'll be $3 after its release in December. And you can keep up with all the amazing developments by finding The Swithin on Facebook, Twitter, and our website. Just search for The Swithin, S-W-I-T-H-E-N. Now, you may have already noticed in the story that Merlin does a lot of tricky business to meet with Pendragon and Uther, and he's going to do even more today. And you might be like, what is that about? Like when he appears as a woodsman to the messengers, and then as an old man, and then as a wealthy man, and stuff like that, and none of it quite makes sense, nor can we really know why it's there in the story. And also, you might remember, there were those two incidents where Merlin was on his way to Vortiger from his mother's house, and he made those weird predictions like the guy with the new shoes is going to die. And you might be like, this is all kind of extraneous to the thrust of the main story, and what purpose does it really serve? And so, speaking as the author, I'm going to give you some insight that you can't get anywhere else. And that insight is, I don't know. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that he does it to make people believe in his powers, like he appears as one person who predicts something and then as someone else who kind of confirms it. And the predictions he makes to the messengers seem to just confirm to them that he has these extraordinary powers and that they should believe him. But honestly, I really don't know the reason these elaborate ruses are in there and what purpose they serve. So then the question is, why didn't I remove them? If they just slow the story down, why not just get rid of them completely? And the answer to that is, the thing about the overall Arthurian legend is that it's spooky. It's weird and uncanny, and there's a lot of things about it that don't make any sense. Although, in a weird way, they kind of do. And at times it seems like these rambling stories have no real point, except, in a weird way, they're totally cohesive and they form this unified whole. So there are things like this that I don't fully understand, but I just have to trust that they're in there for a purpose, and so I leave them in. And plus, in this case, they're really just atmospheric and give us insight into Merlin, as well as make him come off as strange and otherworldly, and I just thought they were very important to preserve. The other thing is, that's what makes these stories kind of different and special, Let's look over what we call peak TV. And yes, television shows are much better than they were until the mid-90s and much better written. But by this time, it's getting all a little bit bland and predictable, right? Like everyone just has the most explosive backstory ever. And everyone has the most complicated motivations ever. And everything's there for a reason. It's all calculated to have the most devastating emotional impact. And when it works, it's good. But after a while... 
it all starts to seem exactly the same. Even as different as many of the shows are, they're all kind of the same. And so I wanted to preserve that weirdness of these novels and the way they're very evocative and open-ended and have things that are more thematic than just plot level, and they make the whole thing different and unpredictable. Because one of the things I love about these stories is, one, they don't end up where you think they're going to. Two, as you've seen if you were with us through the first book, they end up somewhere very different from where they started. And because of that, you really don't know where they're going. And when was the last time that you watched a TV show or a movie or a book where you really had no idea where it was going to end up? So by leaving in these mysterious, inexplicable things, I'm preserving some of that sense of weirdness and these things that make it all magical, but don't necessarily, strictly speaking, make sense. Yeah, so there you go. And so without further delay, let us continue our story for today. Part 2, Chapter 23. Blaze had settled in nicely and has made his room up very comfortably so that he could relax there and also work with Merlin on his book. He enjoyed taking daily walks around the lands that surrounded the cottage in which they lived. The surrounding forest and valley was fantastically wild and beautiful, although one could not help but be aware that it was also replete with dangers, and if one were injured far from home, one might never be found. One day Merlin knocked on the door where he was engaged in reading and entered. Blaze, I'm glad to find you here, Merlin said. I want you to feel something. Merlin sat down opposite him as the holy man simply looked back with his plain blue eyes, waiting. The seer held out a dull round black stone to him and placed it in his hand. Blaze looked at it in his palms and let his fingers run all over it to feel it. A rock, he said. Yes, replied Merlin, now in your other hand, and he placed another stone there. This one was blacker and more shiny. Blaze looked at it, felt it, and said, another rock. Quite right, said Merlin. Do they both feel the same? Blaze worked each with his fingers and lightly bounced them on his palms. This one's smoother, he said. Mm-hmm, Merlin added. Hold them quietly. Anything else? Blaze closed his eyes and held the two stones in his hand and remained still for a moment. No, he said afterward. Think on the feeling you get when handling saints' relics, said Merlin, watching the old man eagerly. Think about the feeling when you hold these stones. Blaze remained looking at Merlin for a moment, as he thought, then looked down at the stones in his hand. He watched them for a moment in silence as Merlin remained motionless and quiet, and then there was a moment when Blaze was exceptionally still. Then he shifted in place. But honestly, Blaze said, his tone vaguely apologetic, I'm never sure, really, if I do feel that feeling or if I'm just imagining it. Say you weren't imagining it, said Merlin. Could you go further into the feeling that what you held was, he drew the word out, significant somehow? The old man held on quietly. His face seemed slightly emotional, and he said, I could try. Merlin said nothing, and Blaze looked at the stones for a while, with his sympathy growing in his eyes, and then he closed them. His fingers shifted and began to caress the stones. Would you say, if you were to go along with this feeling, Merlin said, that one of these stones is more powerful than the other? Blaze felt them both and weighed them in his palms again, then reached forward with the shinier one. That's right, Merlin said, reaching forward to take them both back from Blaze's hands. You're exactly right. Now stretch both your palms out, he said, and the hermit did so silently, as he seemed not in the mood to talk, and held them open in the air. Now, Merlin said, take this one again, and he handed him the dull stone, and take this one. 
Oh, Blaze exclaimed. He looked at his hands, then brought the shiny stone up near his face. What are these? Resonant stones, said Merlin, taking the dull one. Although this one isn't. This is just a rock. He tossed it aside. Now keep that one, he said, and take this one. He handed Blaze a larger stone, about the size of an orange, which was a deep blue and somewhat translucent, with a stripe of whitish band that ran through it. Blaze looked at it eagerly as it sat in his sand. Hmm, he said with pleasure. Different. It's different, isn't it? He asked. He looked again as he rolled it in his hand. Yes, it is, said Merlin. Cool and tranquil, no? That one is from a pool in the cool and clearest water among the wet trunks and leaves very far from here where people have never been, he said. They're like waters, Merlin added. They contain the essence of what's around them, and when you taste them, he closed his eyes with a thought, it's as though you're taken to that place. Blaze opened his eyes. And these have been here the whole time, he asked. Merlin nodded. Blaze shook his head in wonder and looked from one stone to the other. Give me that one, Merlin took the darker stone, and now take this, and he handed him a flat stone of rich burgundy. Ah, said Blaze, his eyes closing as he felt an aching sweetness. Oh, now. Merlin smiled. I want you to start looking for these stones on your walks, he said. You'll be able to feel them when you do a bit more work to become familiar with their different tones and characters. He took the blue stone now and handed Blaze a cloudy, egg-shaped white one about the size of a fist. Oh, whoa-ho now, uttered Blaze, who seemed to have a moment where he lost his composure. Some strands of wispy white hair fell into his face. Some of these are, he breathed, quite something. Merlin smiled and looked gladly up at his companion. Collect them in your pockets, he said. If there are any that you particularly like, you can keep them. If you find some that are too large or that you can't get to safely, remember where they are and I'll come collect them later. Blaze held up the white rock and looked with humility at it. This will add quite some new flavor to my walks. Merlin grasped his wrist warmly. I would not ask you to do it if I didn't know that it will lead you to experience wondrous things and see places of the most agonizing beauty, which I know you'll be able to appreciate, he said. And know, Blaze, that there are few people I could ask to do this, he said, who are as pure of heart as they would need to be. Blaze lowered the stones and looked at Merlin with kind eyes, blinking slightly at him. But Blaze, Merlin continued, hands still tenderly on his arm, pay heed to the feeling that tells you to stay away and always trust it, for there are places, now that you're so attuned, that could be quite dangerous for you. Merlin looked him in the eye, and let me know where those places are, too. Blaze nodded and sat back in his chair, putting the burgundy stone down and holding only the cloudy white one, clasping it in both hands and bringing it near to him to rest on his belly. He looked into the distance and seemed to fall into a state of placid thought, remaining motionless for some time. Can I keep this one? he asked of the white, milky, translucent rock. Sorry, no, replied Merlin. That one is appointed to a very special purpose, he said. But that won't be for a year or so, so you can keep it until that time if you like. Blaze nodded serenely. Thank you for showing me this, Merlin, he said after a moment. Part 2, Chapter 24 so King Pendragon lodged in the town Merlin suggested, where many of the inhabitants made joyful welcome of him, gave thanks that he'd returned, and declared themselves loyal and unwavering. 
The king had a few days of making himself known in the town, meeting several people, but no one that he was seeking, until one day, weary of handshakes and commending of children, he found a highborn man in very fine dress striding directly to him across the town square. Sir, he said, Merlin bid me to come to you, and he wants you to know that he was the woodsman who addressed your messengers in the tavern, and also the herdsman with whom you spoke in the woods. I give you proof in that he said he would come to you only of his own will. The king's eyes searched those of the regal man eagerly, for he was curious to know if this, too, was Merlin, and in his eagerness he forgot to say anything. Merlin told you the truth that day, said the man, and stepped back, making a gesture toward the king, but you still do not need anything from him, and Merlin has never wanted to see any king unless there was something great for him to accomplish. Dear friend, spoke the king, I would see him very happily now, and I have great need of his help to assure our success in, he thought quickly, driving the remaining Saxons out and reclaiming Britain for his people. The king thought he should say something noble, since it didn't seem right to simply say he sought Merlin so that he would win. The man smiled cleverly. Because you say so, he said, Merlin sends you some wonderful news. Hengst is dead, he said, killed by your brother, Uther. The king gasped at the news. Merlin, he thought, this Merlin is wonderful. His mind thought on the implications, all of them indicating great advantage to him, and he uttered, is this true? You would be unwise to believe me before you prove it for yourself, the nobleman said. Stay in this town and send messengers to your brother to see if what I have said is true, he cocked his head curiously. And if it is, believe even more in the worth of Merlin's counsel. With this, the man turned. Some people passed very close between them, and when they drew away, the man could not be found. Pendragon stood amazed for a moment, dazed by the news. The king sent his messengers at first light to seek news of Hanks, but they had not ridden more than a day before they met Uther's messengers come to tell him how Hanks had been killed. When the king heard this, he was very excited, for it seemed almost too good to hope that this great seer would give such an immense advantage to him. He already had, for it was great advance to have Hanks dead and his men leaderless. And now they could have the advantage of Merlin's vision and advice on everything from now on? With that power behind him, all of the challenges he anticipated as being so arduous would melt away almost effortlessly. After this, the king made himself widely available and visible in town, which brought him in constant contact with the townsfolk, and had him meeting a great deal of people. One of these was a hermit of regal bearing who appeared older and more wizened than the king, middle-aged, his head bald and beard full and gray, but not seeming frail and weak. He projected a firm masculine strength, and his eyes gazed directly at the king with immense confidence. Sir, asked this man of the king, are you waiting for someone in this town? The king's eyes sharpened as he took in the regal man. I wait here for Merlin to come and speak with me. The man chuckled gently and laid a firm hand on the king's shoulder. He was of such steady assurance that he was able to make the young king feel like a child. "'King, you are very great,' said the man. "'But you are not so wise that you can recognize the one you seek when he's talking to you. "'Now, if you will call those who would know Merlin to a private place, "'you can ask them if I could ever be this Merlin that you seek.' They returned to the lodging where the king was staying, which was not in any way fit for a king, although Pendragon understood the value and loyalty of allowing the common people to host him and his retinue. When the king entered the common area with the strange man following behind, he found those men who had known Merlin when he was advisor to Vortigar. "'My lord,' said the king, and the older man standing beside him, "'I am waiting for Merlin, but I do not know what he looks like. You've seen him when he made predictions of Vortigar. He found it hard to contain a slight smile, tickled by the situation. If you see him, I beg you would tell me. 
Yes, sir, said Brantius. His impression is so. He appeared to be choosing among several unpleasant words. Singular. It would be impossible for us not to recognize him if we saw him. This brought a smile to the face of the man that the king had brought, who looked at Brantius and asked, How can one who does not recognize himself recognize another? Brantius was unsure how to respond to that, so he said, I would definitely recognize him. He's only seven years old, perhaps eight by now, but I do not see him here. The hermit put his hand on the king's shoulder. Let us find a room where we can speak alone, he said, and I will show him to you. The king led him back to his own chamber and had the advisor stand outside. The strange man entered the room with hands on his hips, and his eyes took in the manner in which the king kept his private chamber and found it quite orderly, which pleased him. He turned as the king shut the door behind him, eyes expectantly looking to the stranger with great eagerness, for he dared not believe he had finally come into the presence of the great seer. Sir, said the man, I would very much like to make friendship with you and your brother Uther, and you should know verily that I am the Merlin that you've been seeking, but those who believe they know me do not know me at all. You will see this quite soon. The king trembled in reverence and awe as he had not done in a long time, and he hesitated to speak for fear of harming the fragile union as it just beginning to form. It is wonderful to meet you, Merlin, he said. I have heard much of your talents. But still not so much that you would know how powerful I actually am, the old man said. Go now and bring those who say they know me, as well as the men you trust the most. They will tell you with certainty that you have found me, and he pointed at the king. But know that, had I willed it, you would never have found me. The king nodded. He was unsure what that was supposed to mean, or what he was supposed to take from it, but he wasn't going to argue. I will do anything you say, he said. He fetched the men, and when they opened the door again, there was the boy Merlin had been when they seen him advise King Vortigar, and they said, Sir, it is true you have found Merlin. This is the boy we saw inform King Vortigar of his death long before it happened. Be sure you know who this is, said the king. We know that this is Merlin, said Brantius. Sir, they tell you the truth, said Merlin, and when the king turned to him, he was once more the impressive bearded hermit who had appeared to him, for this was the form that he wished most people to know him, and would make it easier for them to believe in the things that he said. In that guise, as a boy, was how I appeared to them then, he said, but this will be known as my true appearance now. So king, said Merlin, and he turned full to Pendragon and reared up royally, hands on his hips, and spreading out the great emerald cloak that he wore. Tell me, what is your will? The king's eyes looked at Merlin as though he were a delicate gift, which is what he was. They gleamed with promise as his hands rubbed over each other greedily, weighing his words with greatest delicacy. I beg you humbly, Merlin, if it is possible to be my loyal friend and use your incredible foresight to advise me on how to serve this country most successfully, he said. And let me be faithful to you in return, for every man has told me that you are most powerful and wise." Merlin stood proudly before him as the king said these words. Then he said, Sir, I gladly accept your friendship, and be certain you will never ask me for anything that I will not plainly tell you, if it is something I know about. Would you please tell me, said the king, whether I spoke to you after I came here looking for you? I am the old man you found tending the livestock, said Merlin, and I am the man who told you that Hanks had been killed. The king smiled to Roldan and Brantius. You knew him badly before, he said jokingly. Sir, we never saw him change his appearance in this way, said Roldan, nor did we even know that this was even possible. But it is plain that he can say and do things no other man can. 
The king turned back to Merlin. On his face was the most curious smile. He paced a wide circle around him, hands on hips, unable to decide what to ask first. How did you have knowledge of Hank's death? Merlin told him the story of how he had visited Uther in the encampment and warned him of the attempt on his life. He watched the face of the king as the ruler realized that Merlin had not only turned the entire war that way, but had saved his brother's life. It's a wonder that he believed you, said Pendragon. In what form did you appear to him? I took the shape of a withered old man, and I found him standing by himself, Merlin said. I told him outright that he must be very watchful that night, for if not, he would have to die. Did you reveal yourself to him? He does not know who I was or who warned him, said Merlin, and will not know until you yourself make it known. These are steps I take to ensure that the both of you will believe for yourselves in what I tell you. You've told me enough and done enough, said the king, that if all you've said is true, and you say the life of my brother, I could never disbelieve a word you said. Go and tell your brother what I have said to you, and if he tells you that this is exactly what happened, never disbelieve me on any subject. I will tell you how to recognize me when I approach your brother. I will appear as the old wretch who warned him of Hank's attack. And when will you speak to my brother? I will happily tell you, said Merlin, and then he pointed a firm finger toward Pendragon. But be careful, if you truly want my friendship, that you never tell anyone else. For if I learn that you have betrayed my trust, you would lose my faith in you forever, which will hurt you far more greatly than me. If I lie to you ever, said the king with a great sweeping gesture, trust me never again. But I will question you extensively, he said, and I tell you this openly. Question me in any way that will help you believe, said Merlin, but lie to me or insult me with tests of doubt and you will find yourself sore mischieved. And you should know that I will speak to both you and your brother on the eleventh day after you once more are with him. Then Merlin and the king shook hands and soon after Merlin returned to Blaze. The king sat out in the hall with his advisors and knights who chatted away aimlessly while his gaze remained focused on the middle distance, transfixed by thoughts of this Merlin with a faint, delighted smile on his face. That's it for today. Join us next week as the story continues. If you get tired of listening over the course of several weeks, the full ebook and paperback of this novel is available over at Amazon and most other online booksellers. The full audiobook will be available, and it might be by the time you listen to this, over at Audible, where you can also find the first book. Just search for the Swithin, S-W-I-T-H-E-N, or Scott Tellick, T-E-L-E-K. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, or visit the Swithin website by searching the same terms. Okay, thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe or leave a comment or what have you or whatever you want to do, and we will see you next week. Thanks.